This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. We're doing another remote edition of the podcast, and this time we're taking advantage of this remote format to talk to uh, Yvonne de Betz of Brasserie de la Seine, uh, directly from Brussels, Belgium. Welcome to the podcast, Yvonne. Thank you very much, Jamie. Hi, guys. We've got uh, co- my co-host, Joe Stang, who's uh, joining us from Missouri. And uh, welcome, Joe. Thank you. Or welcome back, I should say. I mean, this is not your first podcast. I'm here sometimes. I pop in and out. Now, uh, of course, you know, Joe wrote the Good Beer Guide to Belgium and lived in Brussels uh, uh, at the time of uh, Brasserie de la Seine's founding. And of course, uh, Joe and Yvonne uh, wrote, uh, co-wrote, I should say, around Brussels in 80 beers. Um, And so they've got uh, a long uh, history together. And uh, anyway, we're looking forward in this episode to talking to Yvonne about uh, brewing Belgian-style beers, brewing saisons, brewing with Brett, um, brewing mixed fermentation-type beers, and uh, his strong opinions about the, the history and uh, you know current iterations of uh, of Belgian beers themselves. Before we talk about that, nearly 2,000 breweries across the U.S., Canada, and Mexico partner with GND Chillers. Innovative modular designs and no proprietary parts propel GND ahead as the premier choice for your glycol chilling needs. Breweries you recognize like Russian River, Ninkasi, Jack Sabby, Samuel Adams, and a bunch more brewers you've heard on this very podcast all trust GND to chill the beer you love. Call GND Chillers to discuss your project today or reach out directly at gdchillers.com. Also, BSG is partnering with Leopold Brothers to bring a new line of small batch handmade malts to brewers and distillers. Leopold Brothers is a family-owned floor malting operation and distillery and 2020 James Beard Award finalist located in Denver, Colorado. Since brothers Scott and Todd Leopold first opened their doors in 1999, they've created everything from classic unfiltered lagers to a number of spirits, including a wide array of whiskey styles. Learn more about the upcoming malt line by going online to bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact BSG at 1-800-374-2739. So Yvonne, let's talk a little bit uh, or, and start the way that we normally start the podcast and talk about your background in, uh, in brewing. Um, how did you get to the point uh, you know, to where today you uh, founded and now uh, uh, run Brasserie de la Seine? Well, it's a little bit of a complicated story, actually. Um, I can say that I, well, I, I probably cannot say how long I've been drinking beer because it's an American audience, but actually it dates back to the age of four, I'm afraid. Uh, at the time, the, the, this blessed time, uh, it was totally allowed to drink uh, table beer, extremely light beer at school, actually. And I still remember my grandmother who came to, to take me from the the kindergarten every Tuesday for for lunchtime and I was allowed to drink one small glass of table beer then and I think that the seed was planted uh, probably from that day on. Um, Of course as a teenager we can drink beer uh, earlier than you guys in in the US and and I did (laughs) but um, I think I can say I became um, I started to become quite serious about beer uh, when I was 18 and uh, 
right after that, a key moment was in 1989, when I met for the first time uh, one of my mentors, uh, Jean-Pierre Van Roy from the Brasserie Cantillon. It was my first visit to them, and uh, he had some, some time to, to, to spend with me chatting. And after just five minutes, he transmitted me uh, his virus, I, if, I, if I may say now, in this strange <laughs> period. Uh, I mean, his love for good beer. And also, he's the guy who explained to me that behind a good beer, there are often very beautiful values and that it's worth fighting for those values. So I, I often call Jean-Pierre my... my uh, Yoda uh, in beer. He was my <laughs> sort of Jedi master, and he he, he taught me how to fight actually for for it. Um, that's the the very start. My my real background in university is political science and um, work sciences as well. But during that time, I rarely uh, was in my auditorium. But instead, I was always at the Brink School of that university, and I have some very famous professors there, if I could just sit in a corner, stay quiet and listen to them. And they very gently accepted that. So I, I was very often with, with, with those guys. But well, I finished my studies, I became a social worker. And my passion for uh, beer grew and grew and grew. I started homebrewing in um, 97. Um, and then in 2003, at the age of 33, I was quite fed up with my current job and I decided to try to do something with my passion. And I decided to go to uh, Brink School for making more classic st studies, not just sitting in, in, in a corner as I did. That was in uh, Institut Maurice, which is the Brink School of Brussels. We are very lucky in Belgium because we have five Brink Schools of university level. In Germany, they have only three, and we are a way smaller country with five. So that's that, that, that's quite cool. And those years, 2003, 2004, have been one of my best years, I have to say. Uh, Institut Maurice is a very nice school, very human-sized kind of school. My professors became close friends, and it really changed my life. Um, just after I finished those studies, uh, I became a professional brewer. Uh, in between, uh, a friend of mine, Bernard, started uh, to launch a very small brewery in the suburbs of Brussels called the St. Peter's Brewery at the time. And because he had no formal education in brewing and I was um, having it, I quickly became his technical consultant. Uh, after leaving school, I could work for the Duranke um, Brewery. Uh, that was followed by working for Cantillon, uh, after, but in 2006, we decided with Bernard to join our forces uh, because we were trying to 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 to, to put our, our beers for me, the Duranke beers, and for him, his beers in the same cafes. Actually, so we said, okay, we will uh, maybe uh, come in conflict uh, someday because of that. So let's join our forces, and this is why we created formally Brasserie de la Seine together in 2006. We had then um, no location no more because uh, the first brewery we had to start at um, was way too small then uh, and, and really not practical for hoping making a living. So we had for five years the opportunity to use other people's uh, breweries to brew our beers. It was mainly brewed at the Ranke because I knew those guys very well and I knew they had extra capacity for us. But I also had time to time to go uh, to France even, to my friend Daniel Thierry, uh, using his brief for bring some extra batches when the Ranke 
uh, didn't have enough capacity for, for us. So we worked between those two breweries for five years. I insist we were brewing ourselves. So it was not a contract route for us. We were the brewers who were responsible for all the batches we made. Uh, it was our methods, etc. And then finally, um, in 2010, uh, we found a proper first location in Brussels, in the commune of Molenbeek, and we could make our first batch 100% made in Brussels there in December 22nd, 2010. Um, we started producing roughly 1,000 hectoliters, a uh, little bit more, maybe say 1,000 US barrels, uh, with two and a half people, and um, when was that? In 2019, so nine years after, uh, we were 20 people making uh, roughly 10,000 barrels, a little bit more. And we decided to build a second Brussels facility uh, in the center of Brussels, actually a very interesting location called Tua Taxi. So this is all third uh, brewery some, somehow. Brussels is a... a crowded beer city and, and Belgium in general has a significant number of breweries, especially in a, uh, as a uh, number of breweries compared to the population. Um, why would you and Bernard decide to launch a new brewery in a market that was already as crowded as it was? Actually, the market is quite crowded because the country is small and we are in the capital of the country, Brussels. And so every single Belgian breed tries to sell in, in, in Brussels because of that. But uh, it was not at all and it's still not crowded if you take the number of breweries. Uh, when we started De La Seine uh, in Brussels, you only had one remaining brewery and that was Cantillon. Uh, so we we doubled the number of, of Brussels breweries um, uh, at once, and I also always say as a joke, but it's true that the previous guy who did that did it probably around the year 1060 uh, or some something, because Brussels was the historians are, don't always agree, but Brussels um, was born around the year. 1050 and so you can imagine that directly you had a brewery of course at, at the time in in the region and then a few years later uh, a second brewery came that guy was the first to double the amount of brussels breweries <laughs> and then yeah. uh, it was uh, uh, first more breweries coming then a decline only one left and well we doubled the number again in 2010 we're quite proud of that so brewing in Belgium was generally centered outside of the city of Brussels, and you thought that there was an opportunity yeah. to build a, a brewery within the city. Yeah, actually, the um, the city itself had, had a rich, like super rich, um, bring scene uh, back back in the days. It's very hard to count, also because because some breweries close and then uh, continued under another name and and stuff. But there were most probably about two hundred fifty. Uh, Real breweries, I mean, we bring equipment around 1900, but um, there were plenty of others who were just buying either wort or beer to breweries having the, a brew house, basically, for aging the beer themselves and making the, the right blends. And so if you take those guys into account, it, it, it's probably, the number is not exactly right, but it's probably around 400 different places where beer was made in in Brussels. It was a hugely important brewing center in um, in Belgium. Uh, in 1931, we had in Brussels the 
Brasserie Willemans. Uh, that was at the time the biggest brew house in the world and the most modern, actually. So yeah, the the past, the bring past of Brussels is uh, is huge and, and brilliant. But uh, after the Second War, uh, it was only a decline. Uh, breweries closing one after the the other. Some being bought by bigger actors from outside the city. And actually, uh, Willemans was one of the last ones to to close its doors, uh, bought at the time by what is now AB InBev, and that was in. 1988 and after that yeah only Cantillon was left basically yeah is there a stylistic approach that uh, as you all were talking about uh, forming a brewery um, that you felt passionately about um, that uh, there was a way and a you know an approach that you wanted to take toward your beer that might differentiate you from some of the other uh, brewing contemporaries in Brussels, well, of course, not just in Brussels because there was only one other brewery in Brussels, but uh, you know, even in the the surrounding country around you. Yeah, the idea is very simple and was simply to be super selfish. Uh, we wanted to brew the beers we wanted to drink, uh, and uh, we we love hoppy beers and bitter beers. And at the time, uh, it's something that was almost gone in in, in Belgium. Um, we only had a very few breweries making those kind of beers. And when I was ombring, I was making super hoppy and bitter beers already. And um, we just continued that, trying to find more balance, uh, maybe. But uh, yeah, making hop forward beers uh, was the was the idea for, for, for that reason. Um, since that, the, the taste of the people changed and uh, people are um, nowadays way more open to bitterness and and hoppy, fa- hoppy flavors and there was they were when we when we started and it's 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 a very nice move um, very nice uh, social social move if i may say let's definitely talk about that because um you know especially coming from an american brewing perspective um due to the way that importers have curated lineups of beers you know the perception among american audiences um you know of belgian beer is generally yeast and ester forward mm-hmm. um you know strongly flavorful uh slightly sweet in some ways and uh over, over quite not. strong <laughs> right yeah. right right um you know and so we have this uh you know almost a kind of caricature uh uh, yeah, meta idea of uh, of Belgian beer, mm-hmm. and uh, and I love this idea that um, you know you felt like you could bring a uh, you know aspect of bitterness back to these these styles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, what you described is is a true caricature of Belgian beer, but it's 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 a reality. It was a reality at least, and it's it's actually everything we dislike in beer probably um so yeah we with maybe the the chance to 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 be able to to try so many beers also from different cultures i i'm talking about the, the british and the german culture for, for myself for instance that it probably opened our minds um and but also just talking with ancient brewers and reading old books and stuff uh, i realized that the the strong strong swedish how strongly alcoholic spicy thing is is quite recent invention uh, in belgium brewing and so we we wanted to to go back to the roots somehow 
that's an interesting point that, um, you know, for a lot of the earlier brewing history in Belgium, you know, Belgium grew its own hops and uh, hops were a common part of, uh, you know, of that brewing history. Where, what did you, when you were looking through that history, where did you go to, uh, to find some of that historical inspiration? Oh, in books, I'm, I'm collecting uh, brewing books since uh, how long now? Probably, yeah, 30 years. Um, <laughs> but also, uh, when, when I started to, I, I said to be serious about beer, uh, the main thing I did was to visit all the existing breweries in, in Belgium, and especially to talk about, about beer with, with, with the current brewers. But each time I could uh, meet an older brewer, the father of the brewery, for instance, uh, it's, I was more interested by those guys because they, they, they are like a living memory, actually. And it's uh, when talking with, with them that I realized that the image we, we we have now about Belgian beer is very different than what they they've known in in, in the past, and 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 I I I I thought it was just fascinating, and I always try to find back those ancient flavors. But I'm it's on a modern way, of course. Uh, you know, I, I I love history, but I love science also. We have another knowledge now that those people had. So. Uh, History is always a source of inspiration uh, for me, but I will never claim to clone anything or, or whatever. It really is kind of incredible how quickly, you know, decade to decade, uh, some of these shifts happen in the brewing world. And we're even seeing that within wor the world of brewing right now, mm -hmm. um, you know, as the way the beer tasted in the last decade is different than the way, the way beer started to taste in the end of this decade to, to, you know, with, with some differences. And you're right that that kind of generational approach and that view of how things used to be is an important knowledge that we can't uh, lose track of. I, I want to talk about bitterness, especially within the scope of, uh, you know, the beer that most of us in America are most familiar with from you, Taurus Bulba, mm -hmm. um, and how you achieve a kind of soft and round bitterness within the scope of this kind and these other uh, Belgian flavors. Before we do that, are you tired of the trial and error carbonation processes? Then look at Quantiperm's innovative automated carbonation system for precise carbonation. These systems handle wide flow ranges to accommodate all your beer, wine, soda, or cider styles. You can even carbonate and directly send the product to a packaging line without tankage. Besides carbonation, Quantiperm offers robust and economical systems for nitrogenation and water deoxygenation. All of their systems have an easy to use graphical user interface with reports and graphs that you can pull up on your mobile device. Visit quantiperm.com for more information. Also, Grandstand is your source for the latest trends in custom printed drinkware, apparel, and promotional items. They make your job easy by serving as your one-stop shop for everything. Visit egrandstand.com forward slash lookbook to see what's trending. Uh, Yvonne, about the, the bitterness in the beers is what we were going to get to there. Um, the IBUs in your beers and the, the amount of hops that, that I know go in there, I think if these were American IPAs, we would end up having our mouths totally coated in resin and they'd be difficult to drink. With your beers, there's a, a, a smoothness to them uh, and, and you can feel the bitterness and then, it, and then it's gone. I wonder, could you talk a little bit about how you get the sort of high but smooth bitterness in these beers that i think is sort of your your like uh you know your thumbprint of brasserie de la seine 
Uh, it's probably due to the well to many things of course but but among them to the the type of hops we we use and for our beers um we only use urine hops actually for when we do collaborations we are extremely open to any sort of other other hops us new zealand or australia whatever but all our uh beers are, are made with urine hops and i i really really love those ones it's uh, mainly ancient varieties, but new varieties as well, especially for especially for bittering purposes. And I think that for the kind of beers we make, uh, they are more suitable because uh, the bitterness they offer is is more uh, fine um, in, in in general. Uh, it's it's not over the top. Uh, we mix varieties uh, also. Of course, to try to to average the differences we have from harvest to to harvest, uh, we pay attention to the pH of the mash. Uh, of course, it's it's very basic things, but um, I think it's easier to to get that uh, finer, subtle bitterness with hops from from Europe for for some reasons that honestly I ignore, but I just found out that it's better with our beers. Can you talk about some of the varieties that you really uh, enjoy using and, and, and where they're from and, and what it is you know, that sets them apart that you, that you love about them? Uh, well, actually, uh, we, we use hops only from two uh, European countries. It's from Germany and Slovenia. And I buy all of them directly from uh, one farmer. I do the hop harvest uh, with them uh, each year and I choose them, choose the full batches right after um drying and i i think that uh, this also helps to to have the the hops you want and the hops that that will um give you the more subtle flavors and 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 and, and far finer bitterness um but yeah name any uh classic variety and i will uh, tell you that i love it uh, like halto uh, mittelfrüsch spalt uh, Spalter, um, Tetnanger, uh, Sartz, uh, the, the, the Stephen Goldings as well. These are wonderful hops that are um, a little bit uh, forgotten uh, those days, except from, from the people making uh, lagers and, and, and pills. But uh, I think it's, it's those kind of hops you, you can always, you, you think you know them, and actually, you will always like rediscover them uh, because they have such a complexity. Uh, it, it's 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 really huge. They are not uh, punching in your face type of hops, which is something I really I really love because for me, uh, the goal uh, of a brewer when he makes a beer is to make a beer that is balanced, and 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 so do 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 those sort of flavors really help uh, achieving that um for the the bittering hops also i think varieties like it's a dual for variety but like perle for, for instance uh, is a very beautiful hop uh, you can get really really fine bitterness with, with, with it you know as um, in a lot of craft brewing for hoppy beers the the use has moved later and later into the boil and then more into the whirlpool. And sometimes it's all whirlpool now. Mm. Um, what, at Brasserie de la Seine, what's, what's the approach to when those hops go in there and, and has that changed uh, over the years? Uh, good question. We, we add them on very, very classical way uh, and we 
do at them uh, at the very beginning of the boil as well as uh, it was done because we like bitterness and we we like that kind of, of bitterness more than the bitterness brought by dry hopping from for instance uh, we do a lot of first word hopping um, as well then the classic bittering addition sometimes an addition in the middle of the bowl. This is mainly for getting more uh, polyphenols for the light beers, for instance, to get nicer body in um, in the beer because some of the noble hops can bring those interesting polyphenols. We always have a late addition, uh, 10 to 15 minutes before knockout. We do whirlpool addition as well, and for some of the beers, but not all, uh, dry hopping. Um, so yeah, at any possible moment, we, we like to add hops, but it's never in crazy quantities, uh, especially for dry hopping. Uh, and yeah, uh, again, it's uh, most of the time those ancient varieties. One of the other um, really cool things about the breweries, when you go to Brasserie de la Seine, is you see these uh, big squat looking fermenters. They're not t you know tall conicals uh, of the type you might see uh, elsewhere. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, the beers that are fermenting have room to breathe. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about those fer fermenters and the geometry and why that's important mm -hmm. to your beers? Um, I think it's key for beer. Uh, it's, it's for me, the most important piece of equipment we have in, in the brewery and it's indeed fermenters, uh, I designed myself and it's not at all a revolution. It's just, again, an inspiration from what was done in the past. Uh, actually, at the very beginning of my career, I had a chance to work in a brewery with, uh, with equipment dating from 1930 to 1960, about, um, and did uh, those very wide open fermenters. And I really loved the estuary profile from the beers coming out of those fermenters. So, um, after tasting that, uh, I started to talk about tank geometry with as many um, old brewers I could find. Uh, I started to read about it, but there is almost nothing in, in, in the literature about, about that. Um, actually, there is a lot to, to, to be found how to go from the old style um, flat fermenter, wide fermenter to the new style syndroconical very tall and narrow one, but reverse, uh, you, you you basically have now nothing. But I had a chance to, to talk with a brewer of a certain age uh, that um, in the 1960s could experience the move from his classical flat fermenters to new um, CCTs. And he told me I never could find my beer. I never could find back my beer again with the new tanks, actually. And so I, I really felt that there was something extremely important uh, in, in, in there. And um, a study uh, by German scientists uh, have shown that from, sorry, a metric from 0 0.3 bar, which is um, height of liquid of three meters high, um, they could see on the um, cell membranes of the yeast, some signs of uh, physiological damage. Uh, brought by the by the pressure uh, uh, actually, and so that uh, height of three meters became my danger zone that I even never wanted to 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 approach, and so I designed my fermenters to have a height of liquid of two 
to 2.1, 2.2 meters. So I still have almost one meter margin towards the danger zone. And actually, um, and even if he's not talking, but it's that way. But if you take the um, famous book of uh, Professor Jean de Clerc, it was one of the most famous um, bring professor in the world. Uh, it was Belgium, but he has been translated into uh, English, but more surprisingly into German, which is really, really incredible um, for the Germans to take something coming from Belgium in, in, in beer. Can you imagine that? Whatever. Uh, he also recommends uh, never going higher than three meters. It just don't explain why, but there must be a, a, a reason for that. Um, also, uh, Heineken, uh, it's the brewery that probably went the highest with the, their fermenters. Uh, it's from their fermenters, I think, that the nickname Apollo Tank uh, came because they were so high and so narrow. Uh, those guys decided some years ago to go backwards and to um, not having a height of beer higher or what, whatever, higher than three meters. And so there is really something in there. I think that more study uh, should be made, uh, but I'm totally convinced that it's it's the key. What happens uh, in um, shallow tanks compared to tall, narrow ones is, uh, for me at least, and for my beer, so what I say is extremely personal, but it's a better uh, balance between um, high alcohols and esters. Um, in tall, narrow tanks, for me, it seems that you always have too much alcohols and too little esters. And for me, it's the ratio between those two components which really make the balance in, 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 a, in a beer. And so you have less high alcohols and more esters in a shallow uh, f f fermenter. And for the types of beer I want to make, this, this is key. I'm totally convinced of that. So you've then, obviously, because you've also brewed some of your same beers at other breweries using more traditional cylindroconical tanks, have that experience of tasting them, you know, in both kinds of directions. Uh, I'm, I'm curious why you think, you know, as I'm trying to come up with, uh, you know, a, a bring logic for more ester production or a better balance between higher alcohol and ester in shorter tanks, I would seem to think that the lower tanks creating less yeast stress yeah. might actually uh, create lower ester production, but you're saying that uh, it actually brings it into a better kind of balance? Yeah, yeah, to totally. In, it, it, indeed, it, it shallow tanks bring less stress in the yeast. And uh, for, for me, it's also the, the duty of a brewer is to don't give any stress for, for the yeast. The stress is for the brewer. Uh, we have very stressful <laughs> uh, jobs, especially those days. But uh, the yeast should be uh, protected from 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 that from from that stress. I think uh, she does the, the most difficult job. She works day and night for us, so that's the least we can do for for, for her. But uh, one of the many phenomena that are um, uh, happening in the tank, uh, if you compare shallow to to tall narrow ones, is the convection. Uh, within the tank due to the CO2, actually. And uh, in the very tall, uh, narrow tanks, the, the convection is so high that the fermentation is actually speeding up. And um, this is one of the reasons for that disbalance between uh, esters and, um, 
and, and high alcohols. Uh, I, of course, as any brewer, I certainly don't want to have a, a too slow fermentation and even worse, a stuck fermentation. But I strongly believe that having a fermentation that is not too fast uh, is, is good for, for the quality of your beer. This is something, and of course, it was not understood at the time, but it's something that is clearly mentioned black and white in the old books. The, 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 the brewing scholars and, and the brewers would, would always favor uh, a fermentation that would go a little bit uh, slower. And they, they were always a little bit afraid of too, too, uh, too fast fermentations. Uh, I, I, I think there is something, again, um, behind that. And, of course, between a shallow tank and a tall narrow one, uh, the, the difference uh, in... Um, in, in days is not huge. I'm, I think that if I would be uh, fermenting my my beers with the same recipe in a in a tall tank, I would probably gain one day, one and a half day, not more. But I'm I'm quite certain it it really makes a difference. So it's not necessarily producing more esters. It's just a just a slightly slower process that seems to create both of those things in a better kind of balance. Um, yeah, but it's it's definitely because those numbers exist. Uh, if you take the, the, the classic book of um, Bolton, for instance, uh, bring yeast and fermentation, it's 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 in it. Uh, in 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 tall tanks, you definitely create way more high alcohols and way less esters. This is extremely well documented. You know, Yvonne, when you um got the uh the brewery in Moldenbeek. um mm-hmm. one of the things you were really looking forward to playing around with i remember was mixed fermentation and blending with lambic mm-hmm. and um for my selfish purposes i'm not sure you ever did enough of that um but uh, now you've got an, another new brewery a bigger one um maybe it opened at considering the pandemic at almost the wrong time uh, but are you looking forward to playing around more with with blends and having a, a lot of barrels and, and doing more with lambic there? I remember the old crianzas and the, some of the early iterations that were just really wonderful stuff. And of course, we've had mm-hmm. some modestas appear now and then. Mm-hmm. What's uh, what, have, um, what have you got in store? Yeah, it's it's the idea. Actually, we kept the ancient location uh, only to have uh, more room to to store barrels. No, actually, since we built the new one, the, the, the new one for for the, the audience is fully operational since December last year, so December 2019. Um, we started bring there in the summer 2019, but we, we, we started only making kegs there, but kegs and bottles are made there since uh, December. And then uh, a lot of work, of course, and then came the, the pandemic. So we didn't have time so far uh, to uh, to reinvest the previous location as we should have. Uh, we also had the idea to buy way more barrels, but of course uh, we have to put we have to put all that in in, in standby. Uh, we still have beer uh, maturing there uh, that I'm tasting regularly, and we will bottle some uh, very soon. But yeah, the idea is really to to develop that range in the range uh, at at some point when the pandemic allows. What's your approach to those beers, Yvonne? For for example, when you, uh, I mean, you you have a very good relationship with Cantillon, for example, and you mm. and you also worked there for for a time. Mm. Um, so you have access to Cantillon Lambic with your blends. So when you are um, blending with an ale, for example, how, what's your what's your approach for getting the right balance, and and uh, what do you what are you looking for with these beers? 
Um, yeah, we, we, we are not only using Alembic from, from Cantillon when we do mixed fermented beers. We also add retinomyces and, uh, well, not, not always, but sometimes also uh, lactic acid bacteria. Uh, so we have different ways of, of, of uh, making it. Um, but yeah, as always, I don't consider those beers being so different than different than the others and the key uh, for them also is always balanced for for me and uh, i always make sure that we don't put vinegar in a bottle because for me that would be a, a mistake and i know that a lot of the 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 palates of of some beer geeks have been customized to to vinegar in a bottle of beer now but this is this is really something i, I do not want to, to, to do. Of course, as any brewers, uh, we time to time have uh, barrels that are becoming way too acidic. And uh, sometimes we, we throw them away, but I always make sure to keep some of them uh, to uh, sort of season um, the, 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 the beers. For instance, if you make a Flemish red, I think that there must be a small bite of acetic acidity. Uh, in those beers. It, it really belongs to, 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 to the style. Um, it's not always understood, but for me, it's really key. But of course, it, it has to be just a very subtle touch. If you have too much of it, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's wrong. Um, and so when we make the beer, it's a special recipe. It goes in barrels with the right bugs, um, bretonomyces, uh, lactic acid bacteria, etc. And we try not to make the full batch uh, too acidic. Uh, and actually, we try to avoid the contact with the air uh, at its maximum. But sometimes um, the, the finished beer is maybe a little bit too, too mellow. For, for, for the style, and um, that's where we'll brand with a little bit of the more acetic barrels uh, that we kept for that purpose, actually. And uh, starting with a beer that is not clean, of course, but, but almost clean, and then making that blend with a beer that is a little bit off, um, for me, has proven to give interesting results and that are maybe more uh, reproducible. Do you have uh, kind of numbers around what you look for um, in acidity that, uh, you know, for some of your finished beers? No, I'm... I'm it's sensory driven? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not at all a, a numbers uh, brewer. Um, it's, 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 it's really sensory and intuition uh, also. Uh, and yeah, this is... Of course, it's 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 then very difficult to, to share something with other people uh, because yeah, <laughs> do you want to share that? Numbers are easier to share. To share, but yeah, it's it's uh, it's 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 my way of of of, of doing the things. Um, so no, I I will never measure volatile acidity, for instance. But of course, <laughs> but but of course, I will always take notes accordingly. Uh, yeah, it's it's all sensory. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about that in a second. But first, ABS Commercial is excited to be a part of today's podcast. ABS is a full brewery outfitter offering brew houses, tanks, keg washers, and small parts. ABS wanted to do something fun for the craft beer industry, so they're giving away an ABS Keg Viking Keg Washer live on December 5th, which also happens to be National Repeal Day. To enter, go to www.abs-commercial.com, click on the Keg Viking page, and fill out the contest form for your chance to win. 
Also, Craft Beer and Brewing's all-access subscriptions give you a year of the print and digital editions of the magazine, plus access to our library of video courses, a special deep dive email only for all-access subscribers that is put together by Joe Stang right here himself, premium content and all-access exclusive merchandise. Subscribers are the first to see every new issue, including our annual Best in Beer issue that's out now, uh, which also includes a pick six story from uh, Yvonne right here. Uh, go to beerandbrewing.com and click on the subscribe button to join now. Our shameless approach to tie all of this in together and integrated editorial uh, pitch. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about that idea of acidity, especially in beer that uh, Americans might call sour, that Belgians may not exactly refer to as uh, as sour. Um, and you did mention earlier that uh, uh, you know a palate that has developed among uh, consumers and that uh, is one that seems bent towards uh, very extremely high levels of uh, of acidity um you know you mentioned a little bit that you are you're obviously trying to find a better balance there how do belgians in general um culturally and uh, within the brewing world approach that idea of of uh, acidity and how do you find that that differs from um, some typical american brewer approaches to it you talk about brewers, not consumers. Consumers. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Uh, well, I think it's a little bit the the the, the same. You know, it's I, I will mostly surprise you, but uh, making sour beers was almost a forgotten art in in, in Belgium um, because uh, the consumers didn't want to drink sour beers uh, since decades and and decades. And so, even if it's weird, it, it's 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 almost a new thing for us. Uh, I, I know it totally sounds crazy. Of course, some never stopped. Cantillon is one of them, and and Prefontaine and and, and and some others. But um, you have, and I will not name any, but you have a lot of uh, Belgian breweries who used to have uh, a sour beer in their range, or some some of them they even based their reputation on sour beers. In the old days, and then they they totally forgot that, or they were making so small amounts that nobody even knew they still had sour beers uh, in, in in the brewery, and um, and 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 so I think that a lot of them, a lot of us, uh, have, have to find back a way uh, for making uh, sour beers the, the right way, but I think that uh, that um, idea of of finding a balance in the beer. Is, is something that uh, we share among um, uh, a good bunch of, of, of Belgian brewers. And um, nobody likes extreme uh, flavors in, in, in Belgium. This is not something Belgium. Uh, I have to say that in the old days, it, it was the same. Uh, when you read the old books, uh, a strong acetic acidity in a beer was, except for a few cases and, and even that, it's not sure, but it was always seen as something negative, and 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 the brewers would rather uh, try to find all the possible ways to to cut uh, that strong acetic acidity to to to, to balance it with with, with something um, sweeter, uh, and 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 so we we are never been in a culture where yeah acetic was 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 the norm of course back in the days um the, the beers were way more sour and and the sour taste was um called the, the taste of the north north is belgium uh, the south of the netherlands and northern france uh, from a sociological point of view the people in that 
um, region had exactly the same taste, um, and especially for beer, and they wanted some tartness in, in their beer, some sourness, and they wanted to have uh, wine-like qualities in, in their beer too. Uh, and they, they, they called all that uh, the taste of an old beer. But old, which is now an adjective that is a little bit negative, was extremely positive as an adjective uh, 100 years and more uh, ago. So um, the taste of old was something seen as, as good and desirable from uh, the, the consumer um, point of view. And yeah, sourness was part of it, a very important part of it, but a balanced sourness. And it means even at the time, if I, at the time they don't mention it that way, but we talk about lactic sourness rather than acetic uh, sourness. With, again, the exception of the Flemish red that for me needs a, um, a kick of, of acetic um, sourness for, for sure. But so, yeah, to try to answer your question, everybody has a different approach. But um, yeah, balance, I think, is also the key for, 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 for my colleagues. And we will all consider that if a beer we made uh, turned too acidic, or we throw it away, or we keep it to add a very, very small percentage uh, to give uh, more character to, to a sour beer, but not more than, than that. Well, one of the masters um, in that art is, is Jean Vandroy from, from Cantillon. Uh, he, he really has uh, an intuition that is incredible for making the right uh, blendings. And sometimes with base lambics that are uh, not very characterful, uh, and he will mix it with one or two percent of a lambic that is way too as, as acidic because it happens. It's 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 nature, and then the, the final result will be perfect goose. He is is a is a master for for for, the, for that really. Um, achieving that kind of balance, especially in beers, um, you know, with mixed cultures and, and live cultures, uh, is a bit of a, you know, a moving target and a process, mm -hmm. um, you know, and that certainly as those cultures continue to uh, live and develop in bottles, then beers can move in different kinds of directions mm -hmm. and, uh, and different things can happen. Um, you know, through the, the last two decades of your brewing, have you found um, techniques to make sure that uh, the beers that people open and drink are the way that uh, that have that kind of balance that uh, that you intended when you blended them? Um, well, I think that two things. First, a brewer should never hesitate to throw a bad barrel away. Uh, I know that for some of the smaller ones, it can be extremely painful because if you have, I'm saying something, 10 barrels and, and, and four are bad. I mean, it's, it's, it's a huge loss for, for you, but uh, you never have to, 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 to make any compromise with, with that for, for, for sure. Um, the second uh, is uh, gi giving time to the beer once it's bottled. Uh, in my experience, um, and for, for the most complex uh, beers, and especially the ones mixed with a lambic or a beer that is closely related to a lambic or whatever, um, the beer can be ex excellent in the barrel, each individual barrel. Then you make your mix in a jar to, to see what it can give and, and, and to find the right percentages, and it can be still excellent. And then you put that the right blending uh, in bottle and you drink it after a few weeks after refermentation and it 
can really taste extremely bad uh, because the refermentation that is uh, taking place again in, in the bottle will, will give you plenty of, of flavors and totally disbalance the, the beer because those com uh, fermentations are, are so complex. And the, the, the first thing there is not to panic. Uh, it can stay very bad because that happens, but most of the time it will become uh, good eventually. But then you don't have to put those beers on the market. Just wait, sample them regularly. And when you find your balance in it, then you can uh, share it with the, the, the consumers. That is definitely a, a strategy that Cantillon uh, employs aging those bottles mm. after mm. bottling for uh, an extended amount of yeah, time yeah, to definitely. find a stability mm. before yeah. they, they release it. So and, and, and in the old days, again, it was common practice, uh, just giving the time to the, to the time. Which makes that whole beer uh, process even more time-consuming and more expensive mm -hmm. as yes. uh, a brewer than uh, goes uh, through a long fermentation process course, and then course. a long bottle condition. Of course, but sh shortcuts for those kind of beers are never a good idea, I think. And attention, so sometimes it can work, huh? but, but uh, I think that most of the time it, it, it won't. I want to ask Yvonne about something that I think is near and dear to all of our hearts, and that's Pilsner. Um, one of the reasons that I am angriest uh, at this pandemic is that um, sometime this year I should have been sitting in Brussels drinking Zena Pils, uh, <laughs> and, and I have not gotten to do that yet. Mm. Um, and I think that um, that I don't think a lot, a lot of uh, people outside Belgium who love Belgian beer maybe don't understand how important Pilsner is uh, to the beer culture in Belgium. We see the, you know, the specialty ales, the Trappist beers, and of course the Lambic. Um, but the everyday beer of Belgians, just like the everyday beer of most people around the world, is is lager. It's it's a pilsner. Mm. There's a reason it's not widely exported because it doesn't taste like much most of the time. Um, so I would love for you to tell us a little bit about your pilsner, the Zena Pils, and how it came about, and and uh, and what goes into it. Well, once again, it's a selfishness, I, I, I should say, probably, um, because it's extremely hard to find just a Pilsner in Belgium, because um, the, the Belgian people, the, the average Belgium drinker always um, calls is, I will not name any brand, but the yellow thing he gets in the cafe, he, he will call that a Pils. For me, it's not, actually. It's, it's, it's a lager, indeed, but even a lager, but when you know at which high temperature those beers are fermented, no, you can ask yourself a question if it's still a lager, but what, what, whatever. And so in the Belgian culture, this is what a pils is. It's it's really not for me. Uh, and pils is A, uh, probably my favorite style of beer. B, the most challenging beer to make for a brewer. And, and I, I like those kind of challenges. It's a beer that I call uh, a naked beer. It means that it, uh, if it has any problem, any default, it, it, it will just like smash your face directly. So you, you'd better be good when you make um, uh, appeals. And I'm not claiming that um, ours is the best, but uh, it's challenging us uh, each brew. And, and, and I really, really like that. Um, appeals for me is like a definition um, of, of beer. It's the, it's the beer you want to have when you want a beer period it's it's as simple uh, 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 as that and again uh in do in this style if you don't find the right balance uh then your your your, your beer is totally 
uh, worthless. Um, I have to say that um, if we make the Xenopills the way we make it now, um, it's more thanks to somebody else than, than to me. Uh, I asked one of my mentors to help me uh, making it. And this guy is Eric Toft, is the Braumeister at Brauerei Schönram in Germany. And for me, he makes the best pills in the world. And um, I, I wanted to make a pills even before I, I was a professional brewer. It's, 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 it has always been a dream, but I never dared to, to do it uh, without having more experience of just making ales. Um, and also I needed uh, an equipment that I didn't have uh, before. But when uh, I had all that, I still was totally freaked out, to, to, to be honest. Uh, and uh, you, you can only feel humble uh, when, when, you, when you have to make a, a, a pilsner because it's, 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 it's so complicated. And so I asked my good friend, Eric, oh, could you please give me some tips or help me? And, uh, and he was extremely generous um, in that. And he even uh, came to Belgium uh, to, to, to brew the first one with me. And so I, I feel uh, way more uh, secure with him on, on my side. Can you tell us about the Zenopils? Uh, you know, what's it like? And uh, what, what are the hops going in there? And, and um, I, I, it's a Brasserie de la Seine beer, so uh, I assume it's quite bitter. Yeah, but actually, uh, we we took more inspiration from the the pilsners of northern Germany, who are uh, typically and traditionally more bitter uh, as well. But of course, I wanted some bitterness as um, Eric wanted. Is Schönramer pilsner is 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 quite uh, quite bitter too. Um, but of course, it has to be an extremely fine bitterness, uh, which in our case is not at all easy because we are working with a very hard water and uh, we have no way to uh, uh, change the water uh, easily. We don't have that equipment for the moment at least. So we had to take uh, great care uh, about managing the, the, the pH during the brew. Uh, so we we do that by like, like for all our beers by adding some um, sour malt uh, in the in, in in the grist. But for the pilsner, we also played um, on the top of that with some lactic acid, uh, which we add uh, in the mash and in the boil. Actually, uh, very important. It's always important pH, of course, in brewing, but but for making. That type of beer with a hot water, it, it was it was really key, uh, and so we we tried to to, to uh, cast out the words at the pH of uh, maximum five point two. Uh, we also use extremely uh, fine hops. We use a lot of um, tradition um, in 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 this beer, uh, perle for 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 bittering. Uh, it's only kettle and whirlpool um, addition. And um, and we also do a decoction. Uh, it's a single decoction, but still it's, it's a decoction uh, because um, I'm convinced, but once again, some studies will show it's bullshit and others will, so we will, 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 will tell you it's true. But I'm personally convinced that uh, it's very important that decoction for having a good um, malt depth um, in your beer and for a style like this for me it's very very important actually how long is the decoction it's a single decoction so to to be honest i, I never really uh measured 
the the time it's uh, it, wh- what do you mean because it's a whole process de- decoction so wh- you mean the entire process or just the decoction just, part i mean do you do you do you bring um do you bring the separated part to a boil and then restore it or do you boil it for, yeah, for yeah. a period uh, no we we take a, a third of the wort uh, no not, not the wort the mash of course um and we 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 boil it and um we we use that part uh, to increase the temperature from uh, 62 to 72 um, Celsius, uh, sorry, so, so from beta amylase to alpha amylase first. When you were designing the, the new brew house, is this something that you had in mind already that you wanted to do? You wanted to make sure you had the, the oh, kettles for this? For- yeah, for sure. And we, we have quite nice German brew house. So uh, it was very easy, uh, of course. But yes, that, that was something mandatory. Uh, same for the cooling capacity of the fermenters. Uh, yeah, to, to, totally. Yeah, it was the idea since day first. Yeah. From a style perspective, um, and of course, you being a, a fan of Eric Tofts and uh, you know, Pilsner, how would you define or articulate the stylistic difference between the Pilsner that you make and, uh, and say, uh, Sean Ram's, you know, Pilsner, is there a oh, element of character so, that you find to so your own? Same differences then between a dwarf and a giant, if you want my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and Sean Ram is a giant, of course, <laughs> for the ones who would yeah. not have understood. Um, Oh, it's a it's a very tricky question to be, to be honest. I don't exactly know how to to answer to it. I think the the bitterness in 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 Zenopils is a little bit more assertive, uh, certainly due to the um, water chemistry. Uh, the the hoppiness is a little bit more herbal. Uh, while it's more floral in the in the Schönhammer, uh, Zenopils is also unfiltered, so it's actually a Keller pils, uh, and Schönhammer is uh, is filtered, so that gives also quite a, a bit of a of a difference uh, for 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 sure. Um, yeah. yeah, one of the key features in, in Schönram, of course, is open fermentation, and yeah. uh, it's certainly been an influential thing where. Um, even brewers like uh, Vinny Chlerzo at a Russian River have been inspired and learned from Eric in their open fermentation, and the, you know, of course, led to a brewery like Russian River installing uh, open fermentation, open top ferment- uh, fermenters yeah. you know, in their new brewery out in Windsor. Um, do you um, do you have that capacity for open fermentation, or do you, are you using your um, typical lower uh, tank geometry tanks to to ferment this pills? Um... Yes, we have extra capacity, and um, honestly, my dream, if the COVID crisis is not killing us, is to uh, someday be able in investing in one or two or three open fermenters as well. It's a it's 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 a dream I have again since before I'm a, I'm a brewer, um, but I will be extremely cursed to use them in parallel with the current tanks we have because. I kind of believe that our tanks with the geometry they have will give a result that is extremely similar, extremely close at least to an open tank because, yeah, the geometry basically is the same. There is zero pressure on on, on the yeast. Um, I'm sure my yeast is as happy in the current tanks than in an open one, but but I will ask her uh, if I can buy (laughs) some open tanks someday. I hope so. (laughs) 
I talk a lot with my it ears, <laughs> and it's not and it's not not a joke. <laughs> we understand each other, I think. <laughs> Uh, what about the the malt and the mash uh, for the pilsner? Because um, I I know you're, you generally do multi step mashes there. Mm, yeah. Is, is your mash is your mash regime for the pilsner? Is it is it closer to, you know, what Eric does at Shunrama, or is it closer to you know your, your other ales? Um, it's 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 something in 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 between. I would say uh, we do we start at forty five uh, Celsius. Um, but we directly raise uh, the the temperature. We do a step at um, fifty five, a step at sixty three, seventy three. Well, then decoction uh, interferes, then seventy eight for um, mashing out. So yeah, it's a quite complex mashing regime. Um, but if you don't take the the decoction, we 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 are a multiple step um, uh, mashing brewery, so bring. Uh, so yeah, it's it's not like so special for us. Um, yeah, and even if we work with uh, the best maltings of, of Belgium, and I'm extremely secure with the the quality of the malt, I I I I, I still like the multiple step. Um, actually, because it's, I think it it it, uh, it allows you to have a, a better uh, constancy uh, in your in your beers uh, on 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 long term. Um, I I also like to believe that the brewer still has something to do when mashing and brewing, because if you use those like super highly modified molds, it's the molster who made half of the job basically. And then I, I like to have a little bit for myself. And um, our mold is, is very well modified, but not not at all like super modified. Um, I, I would feel uncomfortable uh, working that way. You know, now that you've got uh, decoction as one of the the tools in your toolbox, there, mm-hmm. have you thought about taking that and applying it to you know something like Zinnabier and and see how it turns out? To be honest, if we have to apply it for another beer, it would probably be more for Terras Bulba because I think it makes more difference for um, very light beers, blonde beers, and naked beers, and and Terras Bulba is sort of a naked beer as well. Um, we have uh, two different molds in in Zinnabier, and so the multi character is enhanced by that. Only uh, we have hops in Zinnabier that are a little bit uh, fruitier as well. So I'm not sure that it would be worth the exercise, and I'm, I'm really not sure the anybody, me included, would would, would taste a real difference. Uh, it's also more complicated to 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 do and honestly for a beer like like zinni beer I, I like to keep it simple um it would be interesting probably to do it for taras Bulba to see if, if there is a, a change and so yeah why not it's a good idea joe thank you <laughs> <laughs> all right yeah okay I'll t- i'm gonna take all the credit for that when it happens <laughs> yeah <laughs> if it happens <laughs> Let's um as we're we're getting on in time here. Let's zoom out a little bit. Um, you know, from your perspective as someone who's studied the history of Belgian brewing, as you know, as um, uh, you know, focused on how uh, to make excellent but personal um, iterations of some of of these styles. 
when, when you look at the way that Belgian style beers are made in countries outside of Belgium, uh, in the Western hemisphere, mm-hmm. uh, and others, you know, from a broad perspective, what do you think, um, brewers making those styles can best do to improve the quality of the beers that they make? I have to say first that some of them, uh, they are better than the Belgium, uh, original beer. Um, and, uh, and, and also that's American brewers have saved American brewers and consumers, uh, have saved many traditional Belgium styles that were simply dying in Belgium because the Belgians didn't care about them no more, which is a shame and extremely sad. Uh, some of the, um, saisons, uh, Belgium style saisons made in the U S are better than most of the saisons we have in Belgium. It's, it's very easy. Uh, some Flemish reds, uh, the, the same, uh, I will not say of course that some Lambic like American beers are better than the best of Belgium's now, but, but some of them are really approaching them, but they like extremely, extremely closely. So that's something I, I really to point out. Um, but actually between those marvelous gems and, and the others, um, what I often, uh, taste in, in American Belgium style beers, um, it's, it's. Yeah, I, I, w- I would call it like trying to supersize a, a, a Belgian beer, which doesn't fit in the ID because a good Belgian beer should be balanced. And uh, for instance, um, uh, I often have uh, way too much um, yeast fermentation flavors in those beers, whether it is high alcohols or esters, but like it's it's really over the top or too much spices when the beer is, is spiced, uh, too sweet. Um, but also there is, uh, I think, um, I don't know how to put that, but I think that a lot of American brewers believe that there are only a few yeast that can make a Belgium uh, beer. And especially they are overusing um, a puff plus, so phenolic of flavors, positive uh belgium type of yeast for making the, the so-called belgium styles uh when i'm judging at the world beer cup for instance uh, very very often uh, the belgium style beer are overly phenolic but like overly it's almost undrinkable because it's, it's so medicinal um this this is not belgium beer of course we have a lot of uh, phenolic yeast and phenols are something important in in a lot of belgium beers but not all but it should not take uh, everything over and overwhelm uh, everything this is a mistake i very very often um, see and, and taste um, and also as mentioned uh, when sour beers are, are, are made it's very often way too acidic uh, from for, for my taste at least but i think for the the if you take the belgian beers as, as an example for for, for for that too so yeah always trying to find a right balance and uh, no flavor should overwhelm the, the others the way we typically finish the podcast is is an even broader you know, perspective uh, and that that general question is what does success look like for you what is uh what is the ultimate vision for brasserie de la Seine? and uh when will you know that you've achieved the success that you uh, hopefully set out to achieve actually my I have three things to point out. The first one is 
uh, that I'm so happy and, and proud when I see fellow brewers liking my beers and drinking them. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's one of the most important things for me, and especially with Taras Bulba, when I see that so many uh, fantastic uh, American brewers or Italian brewers, um, wherever they, they are, uh, like it and, and, and possibly put it in, in their six-pack, <laughs> as, as some recently <laughs> did. And, and, and thank you, guys. Uh, I'm, I'm so proud of that because uh, I really make beer for brewers just because I'm brewer and I'm a selfish person when I brew, not for the rest, <laughs> I hope, but when I brew, I am. And, 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 and it's my goal. And, and, and so I'm, I'm so, so proud with, with that. Um, another thing that, and, and it seems to be the opposite, so it's a bit funny, but uh, I'm very proud of is to see my beers in some, in a lot of, of very simple cafes nowadays in Brussels, cafes that don't have a public of geeks at all it's just normal people who like to drink beer and um and i see zine beer for instance in most of those in a lot of those cafes now and 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 people from my, I, I would never think they would like that kind of beer drinking it and having a smile and this this is for me one of the best rewards i i could dream of uh, for that beer especially zine beer we very uh arrogantly wrote on the first labels, Zinebeer, the Brussels people ale. But when we started, it was not the case at all. Of course, nobody knew that beer existed, but okay, we wanted to, to, to put that. And actually, I have to say that now it, it's the case. It's a beer that has been adopted by the locals and they identify themselves to, to, to that beer. And I'm so happy with it. So yeah, if, if, if we can talk about success, it's, it's those two parts. Uh, of it, those two sides of it. It's not uh, making a huge volume uh, because uh, I want, if, if again, if the COVID is not killing us uh, or business, I mean, uh, I want to stop brewing at some point. Uh, I had a dream as a brewer. I wanted one day in my life to be able to invest in a super beautiful German-like equipment and, and have some tools I can play with to end up my career with. And it's just like making very small adjustments to see if I can uh, make a better beer because you always can make a better a, a better beer, and um, and once I have that, I'm I'm very happy. But I certainly want to stop growing at some point. Now we need some growth because we have uh, some big loans to pay back to the bank, and then the COVID crisis uh, hit us like a meteorite on our face. But once we can pay back everyone, um, I, I I want to stop growing actually. Um, so that would certainly not be a mark of success for for me. The, the growth for for the growth it, it, yeah so that's really something uh, i'm not excited by yeah yeah but well, i think that's a good place to stop gnd chillers is the premier choice for your glycol chilling needs try leopold brothers malts from bsg quantiperm's innovative systems offer precise carbonation grandstand is your one-stop shop for drinkware apparel and promotional items abs commercial is giving away a keg viking keg washer live on december 5th and subscribe now to Craft Beer and Brewing to support this very podcast. Uh, Yvonne, if people want to learn more about uh, Brasserie de la Seine and the beers you make, or if they want to find those beers, uh, um, how do they go about finding you and finding your beer? Oh, they should come to the brewery. Um, it's very central in Brussels now. It's a cool location, and we have uh, a very nice tap room uh, with cool staff. So that would be the best place, of course. Um, if you are in the US, there are many very nice cafes 
uh, serving it. Uh, of course, you have Monk's Cafe in Philly. You have the Avenue in New Orleans. You have Holy Grail in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. Um, you have Novareres in Portland, Maine. Uh, you have uh, Sovereign in DC. You have so many of them, all super cool places. And I, I wish I had another hour to name them all. And but yeah, it's it's the sure. beers are quite available in, in in the right places in in, in the US. But uh, please come to visit us when pandemic allows. I want to make a small I want to make a small appeal there because I, I if, if if you've ever um, had a glass of Taras Bulba in the United States you and it's worth it but we probably paid quite a bit for it too and it's people talk about how uh, Guinness is better in Dublin um, and I was very spoiled to live in Brussels for a while and have Zinna beer and Taras Bulba as everyday beers for me and ever since I left I've been trying to go back as often as I can unless you've had these beers fresh on draft in Brussels I'm not sure you've yet had them really so i let's bring on the vaccine and let's all get to brussels and check out that tap room can't wait yeah welcome guys well we'll get over there as soon as we possibly can um yvonne uh, joe thanks for uh joining me on the podcast this week it's been a wonderful conversation about brewing cheers welcome cheers thanks, This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.